0: Okay, if you, have, if you have a Bible with you, please turn to the book of Ephesians, chapter 5. If you don't have a Bible with you, please feel free to borrow one. We've got them, again, in these black chair pockets and at the middle and the ends of the side aisles. And if you don't own a Bible, please feel free to keep that one. Um, Ephesians is in the New Testament. <coughs> Pardon me, that won't be the last time that happens this morning. Um, it's, in, it's in Paul's letters, so after Galatians, before Philippians, Ephesians, chapter 5, Beginning in verse 7. If you're using one of these Bibles we provided, that's on page 838, and it's going to be on the screen behind me as well. Ephesians 5, beginning in verse 7. Would you follow along with me as I read? Therefore, do not become partners with them. For at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children. Therefore it says, "Awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you." Would you pray with me? Our Father, we um, we come needy this morning. It's, it's the only way we ever are. We come to you needy. We need you to give us grace. We need you to forgive us. We need you to help us. <coughs> We need you to help us understand what you have to say for us, what you want to speak to us through your word. We need ears to hear. We need a mind to understand. And so, as we open your word, we look to you and ask that you would help us, that you would feed us, that you would give us more of yourself so that we can be the people you've called us to be. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. What does a person need in order to live. I'm not talking about the ideal life, the life we all want, but what does a person need? What are, the, what are the, the basic necessities of life? A few are obvious, right? Air, we have to breathe. Water, food, shelter, clothing. And one thing you might not think of immediately. Light. Light. Where would we be without light? It's a practical necessity. You can't see to do anything without it, right? I live in West Bay. Sometimes we lose power, right? You probably lose power too sometimes. And so what do you do when you lose power in the evening? You pull out the candles. You pull out the flashlights because you need light. You have to see. And and more than just practical, we need it for our health. We need it for our emotional well-being. Now, if you've always lived in the Caribbean, you probably don't know what this is like. But if you've lived in Canada, right, or the UK or the northern US, you know that that in the winter, you just long for the sun, right? You, it's depression spikes in the winter in those places. I mean, stay over tourism in Cayman is at an all-time high, right? What's bringing people here in February? People, they need the sun. They want to see the sunshine. We love and we need the light. And Paul says something remarkable to the Christians in Ephesus in this passage. He says, you are light, Verse 8, he says, at one time you were darkness, but now you are light. You are something the world desperately needs. But you can only be what the world needs if you're different from the world. You're only light if you stand out. So if you were here last week, you know that at the beginning of chapter 5, Paul was, he was speaking to the, the Christians in Ephesus and telling them that they, they needed to live a very different life from the culture around them. Pardon me. The way they treat sex, the way they handle their money and their material possessions, the way they speak—it should all be different because now they belong to God. And that passage was was mainly negative in the sense that he was telling them the things that they ought not to do. But in this passage, he begins to lay out the, a positive vision: H- how ought people who belong to God to live? What ought we be like? The world needs us to be light to not fit in. So how can we resist the allure? of going back to our old life. How can we we live as light? In these verses, we need to see three elements of a life that doesn't fit in. A new identity, a new practice, and a new influence. And there's an outline on the back of your bulletin if you want to follow along. First, a new identity. Look at verse 7. Therefore, do not become partners with them, with those who disobey God. For at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. What's the reason that we're not to fit in, that we're not to just go on living like everyone else? Paul says it's because that's not who we are anymore. Notice that he doesn't say that at one time you were in darkness, but now you're in the light. He says that you were darkness, and now you are light. It's not a change of circumstances or surroundings. It's a change of nature. If you're a Christian, what you were before you trusted Jesus You are no longer. You're something entirely new. So what does Paul mean when he says that we're light? So in the the Bible, light has many associations and nuances, but it's especially associated with two things. One is moral excellence, holiness. And the other is truth. So light means perfect character in which there's no flaw, no darkness. It's pure. And light means truth. Light has no secrets. Light has nothing hidden. And the only being that is perfectly light is God. So the Apostle John tells us in 1 John 1, 5, God is light, and in him is no darkness at all. He's completely holy. He's morally perfect. Any, any darkness in us, any sin, any imperfection is totally incompatible with his holiness, with his nature. He's light, and he's perfect truth. Whatever God says he is, He is, whatever God says he'll do, he does. His word is the truth, which is why the psalmist says in Psalm 119, your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. Your word is, is, it's a light, it's perfectly true. It shows me things as they are so I can walk forward. God is light and humanity was light once. We were made in the image of God. We were made to perfectly reflect his perfection but we turned from his ways and we sinned. We became darkness. So now instead of the world being full of virtue, it's, it has pervasive corruption and selfishness. People look out for themselves. Instead of knowing God and his truth, we suppress the truth. We say that there is no God, there is no truth. Everyone just makes up their own way of believing, their own way of living, their own way of seeing the world. But 2,000 years ago, a man came into the world, came onto the world scene and said, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Jesus claimed to be the light, to be the the perfection of God's holiness and truth in human form. He came into this dark world to take our darkness upon himself, to die for our sins so that we can again be light. So when we trust in Jesus, he makes us something new. It doesn't mean we're perfect we all know that's not true. But at the very core of your being, in your heart, where all of your the place from which all of your decisions and your desires flow, you become something new. Where before you were spiritually dead, unable to engage with God, you become alive. You're aware of him. Where before your conscience was hardened and dull, it begins to soften. Things bother you that didn't bother you before where before you had no impulse to pray, no instinct to love, those things begin to stir in you. You change from the inside out. Your character changes. Your, Your thinking changes. You were darkness, but now you're light in the Lord. Not because of anything you've done, but because of what he's done for you. Because you've been united to him. And some of you know exactly what I'm talking about. You can remember what your life was like before you trusted in Jesus. You remember the darkness. There are things looking back, you can't believe you didn't see about your life. There, there are things looking back that you can't believe you did. You were darkness, but God has given you a new life through trusting Jesus. And that's what it means to become a Christian. It doesn't mean you've realized you need to get your act together and you start making positive choices to become a better person. It doesn't mean that you start reading your Bible and going to church. It means you've given up on your own effort, your own your own effort to be acceptable to God, to make yourself good enough, and you've trusted in Jesus to forgive you and to give you a new life, a new identity. Have you had this experience? Have you come to Jesus and said, and said to him, I know that I'm darkness. The things that I think, the things that I do, I can't change I can't stop. My only hope is that your death paid for my sins and that your resurrection offers me new life. Forgive me and make me new. Have you done that? If you have, has your new identity begun to show itself in the way that you live? Through trusting Jesus, we are light. So what kind of life flows from remembering this? We have a new identity and secondly, a new practice. Look at the end of verse 8. Paul says, walk, walk, live it out, walk as children of light, for the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true, and try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. He says that our identity should show itself in practice, that since we are light, we should walk as light, walk as children of light. Our outward life should be consistent with our inward nature. And you can see what drives that in verse 10. He says, try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. This is the engine that, f- that powers our new life. So get the logic here. You are light in the Lord, so try to please the Lord. This is not what most people think Christianity is like. Most people think that Christianity, pres- they know that Christianity prescribes a certain way to live, right? There are commands to obey and prohibitions to observe, virtues to cultivate, vices to avoid, and people think that the motivation to do those things is fear. Fear that if we don't live the way God says to live, that he's going he's to not accept us. He's going to cast us away. But what powers the Christian life is not fear. It's love towards someone who died and suffered to do what we could never do to bring us to God. <clears throat> Paul says we are light in the Lord. We're light in Jesus. He has made us what we are. And so we live to please him, not to make ourselves acceptable, but to, to bring delight to his heart. And anyone who's in a good marriage knows the difference. Excuse me while I grab a cup of water. <clears throat> you were all wishing I would do that. and You felt bad for me. Um, so, everyone knows, if you've been in a relationship, boyfriends want to please their girlfriends, <clears throat> and husbands want to please their wives. But the motivations are very different, right? So, Boyfriends want to please their girlfriends because they don't want to lose them. They they don't want to mess up and and cause this great thing to unravel, right? But husbands love their wives out of assurance and gratitude that their wives have promised always to be there for them. It doesn't come from a place of fear, of losing them, it comes from a place of love, of affection. They just want to delight their heart. And that that's what drives the Christian life, trying to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. And so what kind of life is pleasing to the Lord? It's the life Paul describes in verse 9. He says, For the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true. It's, it's fruit. It's the fruit of light. <coughs> so where do you find fruit? You find it on living things, right? Fruit is it's, it's a natural expression of the inward life of a plant. So if you're alive in Christ, if you're light in the Lord, then this life, it's fruit, it should come naturally, not automatically, not without your cultivation, not like you just eat and sleep and play video games, and after five years, suddenly you're this amazing saint. That's not how it works, but it comes naturally. It's what your new nature is inclined towards. And so not surprisingly, since we know that God is light, the fruit of light is a life that looks like God. He describes it as all that is good and right and true, or more literally, with anger, all goodness and righteousness and truth. So God is always good and right and true, and the life we're called to, the life that doesn't fit in, the life that shines like light in the darkness, looks like that. So goodness describes how we relate to each other, right? God's goodness is seen in his generosity. He provides life and breath and food and family generously to people that will never acknowledge him. He does it because he's good. Goodness looks to the needs of others and rushes to meet them. It's quick to give time, quick to part with money. It's the opposite of selfishness. So in a culture where people obsess over how everything affects them, from decisions at work to road construction to a child's illness, goodness is always concerned with the other person. And so it doesn't fit in. So how are you doing in the area of goodness? Would would the people that you work with, think of their faces, would they describe you as patient and kind, understanding, slow to anger? Are you making an effort with people that are hard to love? And how do you treat the dozens of people you encounter every day who can do nothing for you, but they're made in the image of God? Are you good to them? And if, if goodness... Describes how we relate to others, righteousness describes how we relate to God. So the righteous person's life is shaped by what God says about things. Things that God says are righteous, she does. Things that God says are wicked, she flees. She measures by his standard, not by her own comfort. (coughs) She honors God in her thoughts, in her speech, in her choices regardless of the consequences. So righteousness doesn't fit in. How are you doing? When the right thing is personally costly, do you go through with it? Or do you go with the flow and just find a way to justify the omission? And finally, if, if goodness describes how we relate to people, righteousness how we relate to God, truth, uh, truth describes our relationship to ourselves. So in part it has to do with the truthfulness of what we say, But it's more than that. It also has to do with whether we ourselves are true. When we say something, do we mean it? Do we keep our promises? People who are true have integrity. They're the same person to their boss's face as they are behind her back. They're the same person at home as they are here, the same person on Saturday night and Sunday morning. They don't fit in. So how are you doing in the area of truth? Do you speak the absolute truth regardless of the consequences, or are you constantly tailoring it and modifying it, just making it look, make it it look you, make yourself look a little better? Would your spouse or your roommates or your kids say, you're the same person here as you are in the privacy of your home? Are you speaking to one another here the way you were speaking this morning when the kids were not getting ready in time? Now, no person here can honestly face the purity of God's character without realizing that they fall short. But isn't that the life you want. Don't you want to live a life of sacrificial goodness in the midst of selfishness, of, of righteousness in the midst of a moral mess, of truth in the midst of hypocrisy? Think of how we'd shine like lights. I just, I love this picture of walking as children of light. I just see, I see those doors at the back of the theater opening, and it's like we're going out, each of us carrying a torch, going into the dark places, going into our neighborhoods, and government, and school, and work. And we're carrying with us the beauty of God's character so people can see the light that they're dying for. It's a world starving for something good and right and true, and that's the life that we can live in Christ. So we're light. We need to live as light. And if we do, we will have, finally, a new influence. So look at verse 11. Paul says, take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. For it is shameful even to speak of the things they do in secret. But when anything is exposed by the light, it becomes visible. For anything that becomes visible is light. So Paul repeats what he said in verse 7. In verse 7, he said, Don't be partners with the people who are disobeying God. Here he says, Take no part. In the unfruitful works of darkness, he's, he says in verse 12 actually that it's shameful even to speak of the things that they do in secret. And now when Paul says, don't be partners with them, don't take part. He's not saying Christians should just withdraw from the culture, withdraw from society. He's not saying Christians should only live with other Christians, you should only work with other Christians, you should only be friends with other Christians, you should only let your kids be friends with the kids of other Christians. None of that. right Jesus was the light of the world, and where did he go? He went? To the Samaritan well, where he met a woman who was living in sexual sin. He went to the house of Zacchaeus, who was a notoriously corrupt tax collector. We're not called to withdraw from people, but just to refuse to participate in the darkness. We have to be different from the world, but we have to be visible to the world. What good is light if it's hidden? Light has to be present to have any effect at all. And what effect does Paul say we will or should have on the world? He says in verse 11, <clears throat> take no part, but instead expose them. Expose the works of darkness. Shine light on them. And this is what light does, right? It exposes. This is what he says in verse 13. When anything is exposed by the light, it becomes visible. Light makes things visible. It shows things for what they are. So when I was when I was a teenager. I went on a camping trip with my dad, like a backpacking trip out in New Mexico, out in the mountains. And on the last night of this trip, we were back at the trailhead, like in Tent City, where everything begins. And so in the middle of the night, my dad wakes up and he hears a snuffling noise in the tent. Now, on the trail, when we'd been out, you know, like backpacking, <coughs> we'd been very careful to always put all of our food in a bag, which we would like throw up in a tree, and keep away, so, so that bears wouldn't smell the food and, like, you know, come rustle up in our tents. But we hadn't been so careful back in, in Tent City. And so my dad realizes this. He realizes, I think, I think we got some food in here. And so very carefully, he grabs his flashlight and turns it on and finds, in our tent, a skunk. Not a bear, but not ideal. And so, it, obviously, immediately, he turns off the flashlight, lies very still, wants to startle nothing, and eventually the skunk goes away. But but my dad couldn't he couldn't do anything about the situation until he had some light, until he exposed it, until he could see it for what it was. That's what light is for. It exposes. So Christians as light are called to expose works of darkness. We're called to show them for what they are. <clears throat> How does this happen? There are at least three ways. And the first is simply by our presence. Now, you, you maybe have experienced this. You probably have. You're in a group of friends. I have. And you're, you're talking about something you shouldn't, maybe jo- joking about something you shouldn't, and another friend joins the circle. And, and without even a word, just knowing what they must think about what you're talking about, you start to feel ashamed, right? They didn't have to say anything. Just, just their presence The presence of their goodness was enough to expose what you're doing. Why does it work this way? Because a lot of the time, we know that what we're doing is wrong, but we sort of conspire together. Like, if you don't feel bad about this, I won't feel bad about this. Like, capiche, Like, should we shake on it? Like, let's just not feel bad about what we're doing. But, until when someone comes in who refuses to join the conspiracy, all of a sudden you can see it for what it is. So, the presence of Christians in a workplace might expose unethical practices just because they won't go along with them. Right? The presence of Christians in a group of friends might expose greed because they'll be giving away so much more of their money because they'll be living such a simpler life, right? It might expose an unhealthy relationship to alcohol because they, they'll just treat it so differently than their friends do. That's, that, if, if we're living as children of light, our mere presence should make things visible that weren't visible before. It can change things. That's the first way we can expose darkness. But sometimes we also need to speak out in public. That's the second way. So this word that he says, expose them, it's the same word Paul uses other places for rebuke or reprove, to correct somebody. Something, it can be something you say. So sometimes Christians are called to name things that are not in line with God's goodness and righteousness and truth. Sometimes we have to be the ones to say, no, that's not just joking. It's harassment. That's, that's not just good business, that's bad faith. We have to put names to things that are not the way they're supposed to be to bring clarity to issues where the culture is confused. If we don't speak, who will? But there's another kind of speaking, another kind of exposing that might be even more urgent for God's people. The third way we expose darkness is not by speaking publicly, but speaking privately to your brother or sister in Christ. I said a moment ago, this word expose is also translated rebuke. It's the same word Jesus used in Matthew 18 when he said, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault. Go and expose it between you and him alone. Not, not to shame them, but to reconcile them, to bring them back into fellowship. So we're, we're to go privately and express a concern about the way our, our friend is relating to their spouse, about how they're using their money, about um, how they're just going along with unethical practices at work. We, ha- we have a responsibility to help one another live as light. Like. Now this is not comfortable, but it's loving. W- what would be unloving is to see your brother or sister struggling in an area, maybe not even realizing it, and just just leaving them how they are, just saying nothing because you would rather be comfortable. So one time when I was in, when I was in graduate school, I had a friend who got together with me for coffee and I was venting to him, I was complaining to him about how busy I was because I had you know, all this schoolwork, and I had my job, and <clears throat> like this one professor wanted me to be his research assistant, and one professor wanted me to be his teaching assistant. I was sort of humble bragging to my friend, like, everyone wants me, and I'm just, I'm just one man. So, but I was, I was just, I was complaining about how busy I was, and he said to me, like, he, he looked at me very directly, just full of love, and said, Brett, I think what you're experiencing is the fear of man. You're a people-pleaser. you are people pleaser you you want to be impressive to people, and that makes you want to say yes to everything. You don't want to disappoint anyone. You want to have every elite thing that you can do. You're, you're, just, you're living for the praise of people. And, and that was one of the hardest and most helpful conversations I have ever had. He just he turned the lights on for me. I could see it. I could see what he was saying. I, I, I was surprised I couldn't see it before, and I began to see it in all these other areas of my life. He loved me so well. And that highlights another aspect of this kind of speaking the truth in love to one another. It's, it's loving, but it's also hopeful. When light shines on something, it makes it visible. And once it's visible, we can do something about it. When we, when we can't see the ways, we're falling short. We, we won't do anything about them, but when we can see them, we can come to God for his forgiveness, for his restoration, for his help. We'll never come to him for a problem we can't see. And so we need each other. We need to shine our lights on one another, So where do you need to be speaking up? Do you have a friend, a fellow Christian, who has darkness in their life? They haven't shed the party lifestyle. They're, they're going along with something unethical at work. They're, they're hurting people with their words. Their relationship with a person of the opposite sex isn't what it ought to be. And you've thought about saying something, but you don't want them to feel judged. You don't want to lose the relationship. You think, well, probably they already know I mean, they're going to do something in their own time. I ju- it's just—it's not my place. Listen, God is calling you for their good to shine your light on that, to show them the issue, to to point them to the forgiveness and restoration available to them in Christ. Not to not to condemn them, but to serve them, to help them walk as light. And since we since we all need this, how can you make yourself more approachable for this? To whom can you go and say? Listen, I just want you to know that if you ever have a concern about anything in my life, I want you to say something. I welcome your help. Maybe it's your spouse. Maybe it's a friend. Maybe it's your community group leader or an elder. Or maybe, maybe you're the person that needs to come clean to confess that there's an area of your life that's not consistent with the light you want to be and the light you are in the Lord. So what are you waiting for? Who can you go to and say, listen, I want to live as light, but I'm struggling. Can you help me? When we know that we are light and we're walking as children of light, we will have an unmistakable influence in our neighborhood, in our workplace, and on our Christian friends as we help one another walk in the light together. This is what Paul is calling us to. He's saying, be in practice who you already are in Christ. You already are light. You're a new creation. You belong to the light, so live in the light. Walk this way. <clears throat> now Paul closes this passage with a quote. So look at the end of verse 14. He says, Therefore it says, Awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine On you. Now, often when you see, like in Paul or in the New Testament, when you see someone saying, Therefore it says, and a quote, you would assume that's from the Old Testament of the Bible. But this is not from the Old Testament. It doesn't, it's it's like things that are in Isaiah, but it's not from any one place. So most commentators think that this is actually a quote from an early Christian hymn that the Ephesians would have been familiar with, otherwise he couldn't just quote it offhand. A song that Christians would would sing when they would gather together on Sundays, just like we're doing. So, you, I mean, you can just imagine them probably gathered in someone's house in Ephesus, singing together, singing to one another, Awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. Why would, why would they sing that? Why would they say to one another, Wake up. Come back from the dead. Because they knew that every Sunday as they gathered, they needed to be reminded of who they are, their light They'd been raised from spiritual death into the light of the presence of Jesus. And the reason they needed the reminder was that every week they were tempted to go back to sleep, to go back to the darkness, to go back to the way they used to live, to the old way of relating to sex and money and gossip and worry. And they needed their brothers and sisters to call them back to life, to say, awake, that's not who you are anymore. That's why we gather. That's why we do this on Sundays. We need each other. So as we sing this morning, as we interact this week, let's remind one another of this good news. Christ died and rose not to make us better, but to make us new. We belong to the kingdom of light. We belong to the day. Let's help one another live like it. Let's pray. Our Lord Jesus, before anything else, we praise you that you have called us from the dead and that you shine on us. That we have, through what you've done, through your death and resurrection, we have your favor, we have your love, we have your attention, you you incline your ears to our prayer. We have you working in all things for our good. We have such affection for you from you. And so thank you, that, thank you that you have raised us from the dead. Thank you that in you we are light, that we're new, that we're not what we used to be. And so we bring to you, we bring before you, we, we, in our own minds, we bring before you the ways that we have fallen short, the ways we are not walking as children of light. We confess them to you. We ask for your forgiveness, and we ask that you would help us to walk as children of light, to live as beacons in the world, pointing to the beauty of your character, pointing to your love, and that you would help us to to love one another so well and to, to, to love ourselves so little that we would speak when we need to speak, that we wouldn't be comfortable, but we would be courageous, and we would help one another to walk in the light so that we experience more of the light of your presence and so you are more glorified in the world. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.